0: We're listening to City Speak with Max Masoud Farkas. For all the countless, tired phrases we hear constantly in the news describing the state of housing today, from housing crisis to housing shortage to the lack of affordable housing, nothing quite hits the same as that now famous New York political slogan, the rent is too damn high. And indeed it is. The resonance of messages such as that one has mobilized governments over the past two decades to enact a vast range of policies aimed at bringing the cost of housing under control. Among these recent policy experiments is one that has become known as inclusionary zoning. In its most basic form, inclusionary zoning either incentivizes or mandates housing developers to allocate a portion of new developments to affordable housing units. While the good intentions of such policies cannot be questioned, their efficacy is quite another thing, according to my guest today. Emily Hamilton is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University and an economist specializing in land use policy. In a recent research paper, Dr. Hamilton scrutinizes whether inclusionary zoning is actually achieving its stated objectives or whether, in fact, it is doing just the opposite. Stay tuned. Dr. Emily Hamilton, welcome to CitySpeak.
1: Thanks so much, Max. It's great to talk with you. So in
0: keeping with the tradition of many public intellectuals and researchers today, you are fairly active on Twitter. And I saw that your Twitter bio reads, quote, excuse me, do you have a moment to talk about zoning? I love this because I think it perfectly encapsulates At once, how obscure the subject of zoning remains today, and yet how important people like us know it to be, such that we're inclined to talk about it to anyone who will listen. So, my first question is How did you realize that you wanted to talk so much about zoning?
1: Yeah, I first started learning what zoning even is when I fell into an internship in the city planning department of my hometown in Grand Junction, Colorado. Before that, I really wasn't even aware of all the rules and regulations and processes that determine what people are allowed to build on their land. But since then, it's been a long process for me of learning more and more about how the many rules that determine what can be built on a given piece of land shape our cities and in turn shape labor markets and how we get from point A to point B and really important factors like housing affordability and people's choices to live in housing that meets their needs.
0: And your research into zoning has really covered the waterfront to the extent it's possible to talk about what to others might seem like a fairly niche subject, but you've covered every walk of zoning. And today I wanna talk about one of those specific areas that you've focused on. In late 2019, you published a paper called Inclusionary Zoning and Housing Market Outcomes, which was, as I understand it, the first major study on the effects of so-called inclusionary zoning on housing markets. And this is the area I'd like to delve in today. So just to start, for our listeners who may have no idea what the term refers to, What is inclusionary zoning?
1: Perfect. Yeah, this research does build on some past work of others on inclusionary zoning and its relationship to housing construction and housing affordability. But mine is the first study to look at the relationship between inclusionary zoning and housing markets in the Baltimore, Washington region. Inclusionary zoning encompasses several different types of policies, but I'd say the primary structure of an inclusionary zoning program is one that requires home builders or developers to build a certain percentage of below market rate units in a new housing development typically in exchange for a density bonus that increases the amount of housing that they are allowed to build relative to what the zoning baseline was before. So for example, an inclusionary zoning program might look something like this site would typically allow for 100 apartment units, just to take an example. Under this inclusionary zoning program, You can build 110 apartment units, but 15 of them are going to be required to be priced at a point that is affordable to people making some percentage of the area's median income.
0: And as evident in its name, I think inclusionary zoning, at least notionally, seems to be designed to alleviate certain restrictions. Am I correct in that? And what are those restrictions? that they're designed to alleviate?
1: So most inclusionary zoning programs include this density bonus. In the Baltimore, Washington region, all inclusionary zoning programs, except for one, have some type of density bonus. And the concept of the density bonus takes the underlying zoning, which typically comes in the form of how large of a structure can be built on a given site. And the density bonus adds a certain percentage to that underlying size. There are lots of different regulations in place that typically limit how large a building can be. So here we're talking about rules like setback requirements that determine how close a building can be to its property lines, height limits that regulate the overall height of a building, And floor area ratio limits that limit how large a building can be in terms of its interior space relative to the lot that it's on. And it's probably easiest to think about that density bonus as adding on to the floor area ratio that would otherwise be allowed
0: and so is it fair to say that at least in theory and i specifically disclaim it as in theory because i think your findings may find otherwise in theory at least the notion of inclusionary zoning is something to promote albeit with conditions more density is that right
1: yes that's
0: right and your research i know that focused on the baltimore area is this a fairly widely implemented policy elsewhere and Are there other examples of this kind of policy in other cities and metropolitan areas?
1: Yeah, the Baltimore, Washington region, as I said, has the country's longest history with inclusionary zoning, but it's also very prevalent across high cost parts of the country. So many jurisdictions in the New York City region, in the Boston region, and on the West Coast Have inclusionary zoning programs as well. And increasingly, it's being implemented in lower cost parts of the country, also. So, places like Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, one is under consideration in Cincinnati. So, it's increasingly becoming common, not just in the most expensive, most housing constrained parts of the country, but across the country as a whole.
0: And the fact that the Baltimore area's inclusionary zoning program has been so long standing, I think, had benefits for your study in the sense that it seems to have a fairly rich data set associated with it. And I think the novelty of your study is in the fact that it examines actual data to assess the efficacy of inclusionary zoning in a real region. So where do this data come from? Where did you source this information?
1: The history of inclusionary zoning in this region is essential to being able to do a study like this because in this region, I can observe jurisdictions implementing inclusionary zoning programs over time in order to estimate the effects of the policy on that locality's housing market outcomes. And this data is difficult to gather because it's included generally in the zoning ordinance of each locality, sometimes in its own standalone ordinance that was implemented rather than in the larger zoning ordinance. And that's a real challenge of work on the effects of land use regulations as a whole. The data on what those regulations are is very dispersed and often difficult to gather and difficult to compare apples to apples across different localities. Because as we talked about, inclusionary zoning programs look a little bit different in every locality that implements them in terms of what these specific income limits may be, what percentage of units have to be available at below market prices, and in terms of what density bonuses might look like. And in this region, the density bonus is almost always in terms of the amount of built space that a home builder can provide. But in other parts of the country, there are programs that instead use something like a tax abatement to try to offset some of the cost of providing the below market rate units.
0: And to the extent you know this, do localities such as the Baltimore area, do they work hand-in-hand with developers to assist them in taking advantage of these inclusionary zoning programs? Is this a collaborative process or is it something that developers need to affirmatively try to get on their own?
1: It depends on the exact structure of the program. In Washington, D.C., for example... The program is pretty set in stone. So a developer will have to provide a certain percentage of below market rate units in accordance with the inclusionary zoning requirements in exchange for a very fixed density bonus. In other places, it's more of a process of negotiation between the developer and the locality, where the locality might say, no, we're not going to issue a building permit for this proposal that you've made unless you increase the amount of below market rate units that you're going to be providing. And one thing that I found in my research is that many of the localities that have what I'd call optional Inclusionary zoning programs where a developer can provide the below market rate units in exchange for a density bonus if they think that would be worthwhile, increase their profit opportunities on the project. The vast majority of those optional inclusionary zoning programs aren't used at all. So they are either not set up in a way that developers are aware of them and see them as something they would like to participate in. Or they simply have density bonuses that are not large enough to offset the cost of providing those below market rate units.
0: That's totally fascinating. And you've already now hinted at one of your key findings. I think our listeners are anxious for the big reveal in terms of the largest findings of yours. What were they and what actual effect does inclusionary zoning have on housing markets according to your study?
1: So what I found is that these optional inclusionary zoning programs don't have an effect on market rate prices in the localities that have them, which is very unsurprising given that most of them aren't used at all. But I find that mandatory inclusionary zoning programs across the region increase market rate prices relative to what the locality could have expected to see without that program in place. So they are producing below market rate units for the residents who get to live in those units produced by the Inclusionary Zoning Program. But that comes at the cost of higher median prices for everyone who's paying market rates. And it's important to emphasize that the vast majority of people in the U.S. at every income level are living in market rate housing.
0: And if I may ask for you to step out of your researcher hat for a moment and offer your own opinion, did you have any kind of hypothesis or presupposition going into your research? Was that something that surprised you to find or was that validating in some way of an assumption or a hunch that you may have had to begin with?
1: not surprised, mostly because this is in line with how developers talk about inclusionary zoning when they explain how it affects their projects. They often say that inclusionary zoning makes the bottom end of multifamily construction unfeasible, leaving only the most in-demand sites and the highest end projects as those that are feasible to build under an inclusionary zoning program, whereas without that program, it might be possible to build lower cost units that are going to be available at a lower market rate. And in general, I think the term inclusionary zoning implies that it's a way to address the harms of exclusionary zoning. Exclusionary zoning being all the rules that limit how much housing can be built and drive up the cost of housing that can be built. But since these density bonuses that inclusionary zoning programs typically have rely on exclusionary zoning to have their value, it's really never going to be a tool that can unravel The effects of exclusionary zoning and ultimately address its harms.
0: In some ways, it sounds as though your study lends statistical credence to anecdotal senses that the development community may have had. And so, it seems like a fairly groundbreaking finding in the sense that it can offer some lessons, I think, for everyone involved in the development process. And in particular, I want to focus on two groups. I think the intended audience of your study seems to be, at least in part, local policymakers. What then would you say is the lesson for local governments as it relates to their efforts to improve housing affordability as it relates to inclusionary zoning?
1: Local policymakers are kind of the primary group that I hope is reading this research and all of the work that I do since they are those who have the opportunity to Address the land use restrictions that are constraining housing supply and causing affordability problems. I think the key lesson from my research is that to achieve housing abundance, the right approach is not to layer on more and more rules and convoluted programs to try to get the exact right amount of below market rate units out of a new development. But rather to reform the regulations that make it so expensive and difficult to build housing in the places where people want to live in the first place. So getting rid of exclusionary zoning rules or reforming them so that they are less burdensome on housing construction is the right way to deal with exclusionary zoning directly, not by layering on new regulations on top of that. And then I do certainly think that there's a role for government to play in helping low-income households afford adequate housing. But the way to do that is with tax dollars, not with an obscure tax on new construction that acts as if there is no cost to providing these below market rate units.
0: Dr. Emily Hamilton, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: This has been City Speak with Max masuda produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with audio production and music by Greg Gordon-Smith. Stay tuned for our next episode.